Welcome to the Oaks. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I want you to know I'm just so grateful that you are worshiping with us this morning. You could have been anywhere this Sunday morning and you chose to be here. And so uh, grateful that we get to study God's word together. Uh, whether you are a first-time guest or someone who's been coming for a few weeks and still consider yourself new, or you would say the Oaks is my church home, uh, grateful to dig into Mark 14 with you. So if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Mark 14. Now, we also have Bibles that are a gift to you. If you do not have your own copy of God's Word, would love for you to grab one as you head out today. There are those on the Connect table. Just pick one up as you're walking out the door. Uh, also, if you are one of our guests and you haven't received a guest bag, we would love to give you one of those at the Connect table, uh, just as a small gift from us to, to thank you for being here with us this morning. Now, as, a, as you find Mark 14, I feel the need maybe to explain myself a little bit. Um, and I want to begin by saying, you know, I've always wanted to be a, a preacher that could use props. Uh, but I just can't. And so I'm sorry, like, if you came here looking for that and you've just been sorely disappointed since, you know, your first time here, but, but let me explain myself, okay? So I remember being in student ministry, you know, middle school, and I, there was, you know, our, our pastor was preaching on James 4, and he said our life is like a vapor, like a mist. And then he pulled out this bottle of Febreze and just, and I'm like, man, it like, you could see it for a minute, and then it was gone, and he was like, your life is like that. And that's whenever I was like, man, like, that is so powerful. I want to be able to do something like that, you know? Like, that's the kind of communicator I would love to be as a, as a preacher. Um, so then we start the Oaks, and uh, I'm thinking, you know, this is kind of the, the time to try this out. Uh, and so here, here's the point I was trying to make. I was trying to make a difference. Uh, you know, show the difference between living out the Christian life in your own effort you know, like trying to just kind of will everything into happening, living out the Christian life versus being filled with the Holy Spirit, being indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and then living the Christian life. Now, some of you are smiling because like five of you are here whenever there was just like 30 of us at John P. Parker Elementary, and you remember when this happened. All right, so in order to explain this, you know, point, I, I had two balloons. I had one balloon that I was going to air up with my own air, all right? I was going to blow this balloon up. And I was going to show what it's like to try to live out the Christian life in my own effort by like swatting the balloon up to try to keep it up. And it's like, you know, you think, oh, I got to attend to church and I got to memorize the Bible and I got to study scripture and I got to love other people. And it's like, oh, it's so hard to keep, keep that, you know, up in the air. Whereas whenever you're filled with the Holy Spirit and the balloon, you know, is, is going to stay up, you know, thinking, I, I want to go to church. I want to love other people. The gospel compels me to, to live life on mission. And then I was going to open up this box and the helium balloon was just going to you know, go straight up. And that was, the point was going to be just, you know, that, that powerful moment that I had as a middle schooler with the Febreze, you know, was my thought. Now, here's what I didn't think about. I didn't think about the fact that I should blow up the first balloon before I started my sermon. And so I got like, 30, like 35 minutes into my sermon where your mouth is already getting dry, you're kind of winded. And I'm like, guys, this is like, a balloon that you fill up with your own air, you know? And I pull a balloon out of my back pocket and I try to start blowing it up in front of people. And it was just silent. It was like already awkward before anything else happened, okay? And you're like, I'm glad he doesn't try to do this anymore. Well, here's what happened. I got like four laborious puffs into this, you know, fist-sized balloon and it just like it slips out of my mouth and, and like squeaks to like the second row. Right, like, 
right in front of a guy that I don't know because he never came back, okay? So it's like the, the one first time guest we had that Sunday. It's just like, but at that point, I'm committed. So I've got to go all in, you know, it, like the room is silent. It was like, yeah, oh man, I wish I could just go into this even more. But so, so I like grab this balloon, okay, and I'm all in. So then I got to like, I got to like make the point still. So I blow it up and I go through with the whole thing. And it took like another just like painstaking, horribly embarrassing, like four minutes of my life to do this. And then I tried to release the other balloon, but I had taped it in there because it had been, I had a banker's box and it was like knocking the lid off of it. And so that didn't excel like up to, it didn't lift like it was supposed to. So the, the big reveal of like the Christian life was kind of just like, it just peaked out. And so then I had to like swat it. And I was just like, and you know, and, I, and it wasn't funny at the time. And so I just prayed, like, I mean, me and Abby were like, this thing, like this, this may not work. So, so anyways, this is a miracle. I just want you to know, like when you come to the Oak on a Sunday and this church family exists, you're like, man, it's a miracle that this, that this just survived some really bad preaching early on. So anyways, I say all that to say, I am thankful that Jesus is better at using objects to make his point than I am. Uh, we do something every single week here that we call the Lord's Supper, or maybe you've heard it called Eucharist, or communion, the Lord's table. We gather together and we do something at the end of each of our gathering, after we've celebrated the gospel together, where we hold a, a piece of bread, we say, this is the body of Christ, which is broken for you. It's amazing to me that Christ, on the night that he would be betrayed, knowing that his death, his crucifixion, the wrath of God poured out on him for our sin, that on that evening, he would think of me and you. To the point in which he would say, I want to give them a reminder. Not just words that they can read. Not just a promise that their ears could hear, but something they could hold in their hands. A truth so objective that they would taste it as it hits the back of your jaw. And that you'd be reminded of the covenant relationship that Christ has sacrificed to give. My desire is that in the time that we have together, you would come around the Lord's table that you would be able to take the bread and cup in your hand and realize these are not mere props. These are a proclamation of the work of Christ for us. Uh, that the bread and the cup is a proclamation that Christ is present with us and that he will return for us. And, and so with all that being said, as we look at this momentous night before Christ's crucifixion, Fix our eyes on the Lord's Supper. My, my desire is that you would see that the Lord's Supper is a reminder of what Christ did for us and a declaration that Christ is with us. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of what Christ did for us and a declaration that Christ is with us. Now remember as we look at the book of Mark, Mark is writing almost as uh, the Apostle Peter's intern. Okay, so he's writing things from Peter's perspective. And he's bringing us into the Passion Week of Jesus. And so what we're going to see take place is, is kind of the, you know, Thursday night of uh, the day before Christ would be crucified. And so with, with that background, I want to look at Mark 14, verses 12 through 25. Let's read the first section together. We read that on the first day 
of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. What we see here at the very beginning is the preparation for the Lord's Supper, or the setup for the Lord's Supper. Now, it's important for us to see the exact time that all of this is taking place. This is taking place during the week of the Passover. Uh, God is sovereign over the timing of Christ's crucifixion, over his death and his resurrection, so that as Israelites, as people who had celebrated the redemption of God, the deliverance of, you know, the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, as they celebrated that, as they celebrated the unblemished Passover lamb, sacrificed on their behalf so that they could be set free, that they would also see this new Passover had come, this new exodus that would come through Christ. And so we read that it was the first day of unleavened bread, the day in which they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Now, Jesus has already talked about his uh, death multiple times, but it seems that you know, the, the timeline is still unclear for the disciples. And so not knowing when this is going to take place, Uh, the disciples ask, where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Uh, They're they're thinking, okay, the Passover is right around the corner. Uh, Where would you have us to go to be able to prepare this? Uh, Maybe you're curious about the chronology of the events that are taking place kind of through chapters 14 through 16 of Mark. So I want to put this up on the screen for you just so you can kind of get an idea of the day of the week and what's about to unfold. So Thursday, when this is happening, it's when the lambs were slain in the afternoon. Passover begins at 6 p.m. that night. The Last Supper, Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays. He's, you know, sweating drops of blood, and then he is arrested, betrayed that evening. Uh, Friday is the official trial. It's when the crucifixion takes place. He's buried, and then that's the official day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Uh, Feast of the Unleavened Bread and Passover were often placed together. Passover was one meal, Feast of Unleavened Bread took place over seven days, an entire week. Um, Saturday, Jesus' body was in the tomb, and then Sunday morning was when Christ was resurrected. So that's what is about to take place. Now let's bring us back to Thursday, when the disciples are asking, where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, one of the requirements for celebrating the Passover for Jewish males above the age of 12 was that this meal had to be celebrated in Jerusalem. Now, they've been staying in Bethany. The disciples have most likely been staying at the house of uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so the disciples ask, where would you want us to go into Jerusalem so that we can prepare this meal for us to eat? And what does Jesus do? Verse 13, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, it's important for us to um, understand that in that context in that time period, saying that there would be a man carrying a jar of water uh, would have been something that would have distinguished him from other people at the well, at the well, because 
during that time period, most of the men during the day were perhaps working at a trade or working in the fields, and it was the women that typically went and drew water from the well and then brought it back to the house. And so as Jesus says, hey, go to the place where, you know, you're going to see people getting water from the well, and you will see a man there with a jar of water. He sent two of his disciples. Luke tells us that this was Peter and John who uh, went there. And so they go. Now, people wonder, is, is this the same kind of thing that happened with the triumphal entry where Jesus said, go and, uh, you know, you'll see a donkey's colt tied up and say, my master has need of it. And it was almost like in that situation, uh, it seemed that the Lord supernaturally knew that this man would be willing and it just happened. Um, that's completely possible here. But it also seems that the master of the house expected this conversation because whenever the servant takes you know, the disciples to the house, uh, he's going to say, my master wants to know, you know, where is my guest room that we will you know, have the Passover meal? And so it, it almost seems that this is prearranged. Uh, it would have made sense for that to be the case because at this time, Judas is already looking for a way to betray Jesus. He's already looking for like a moment maybe where, you know, the, there's just a small group of them, no crowds that he could, you know, kind of make the arrest happen. And so perhaps Jesus is trying to, you know, keep the details of this meal uh, away from Judas, keep him in the dark, so that only a couple disciples know where this is going to take place until they all go to the place that Peter and John uh, have prepared the Passover meal at this, you know, person's house to, to take it together. And so those are, those are just kind of some things that you see unfolding here. So Jesus sends two of his disciples, says to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And whenever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, this is kind of, uh, you know, speculation from church history, but many people think that this was actually John Mark's house that his dad was the master of the house. Because in Acts 12, you see that the disciples are, and, and the people of God are actually praying at Mark's house. And so it could be that, you know, this is uh, kind of a, an early mention where Mark would have left his father's name out just so, you know, he kept him safe. Um, I, either way, we see that there was a guest room prepared for Jesus to eat with his disciples. So he's, they're shown this upper room, verse 15, just as uh, Jesus said it would be. There's a large upper room furnished and ready. In verse 16, the disciples set out, they went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, it's important for us to remember what the Passover is, is remembering. It's this memorial meal where God told his people, I will set you free. Uh, the, the, the firstborn of all in the city, uh, of every Egyptian house, of every household, that their life would be taken. But, but if you sacrifice an unblemished male lamb and paint the blood of that lamb on your doorpost, when the angel of God passes through the city, he will look upon that door and see that judgment has already come upon that house that that lamb would be considered a substitute for the sin that was behind the door and that he would pass over and the people would be redeemed, considered sinless, innocent, blameless because the lamb took the punishment in their place. 
And that's exactly what is being called to mind right here as we come to the table, that Christ is the true and better Passover lamb, that we have sinned against a holy God, and yet Christ has died for us, that his blood can atone for our sins. If we would simply receive it as a gift of mercy and grace. So here we see this, this meal of the Passover being celebrated as a foreshadow, as a foretaste of what Christ would do the very next day. So the disciples go, and just as Jesus had told them, it came to pass. I want to pause right here and just simply make the point that things were just as Christ has told, had, had told them, and that Jesus is trustworthy. I, I love the way that, that they take direction from Jesus because they ask, where will we celebrate this Passover meal? And Jesus doesn't give them an exact address. He doesn't give them a street name. He just says, go to this place and you will see a man carrying a jar of water. And none of them push back. They don't say, no, 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 we didn't ask if there would be like a guy holding water somewhere. We're asking, where is the place? And whenever I think about my own relationship with the Lord, there are so many times that I'm like, hey, Lord, like, what age will my, my children come to faith in Christ? Like, I, I want to know. I want to know the day. I want to know the signs. I, I want to know exactly when it's going to happen. Lord, will you just go ahead and relieve kind of the burden of wondering what these test results are going to come back as whenever I think about the aging family members or what's going on in my life? Lord, Lord could you just kind of give me like, like the ability to, to know exactly when this person that I'm praying for will, will recognize their, their sin and repent and turn to you? And you know, what does Jesus say? Uh, tomorrow will worry for itself. Trust me today. Take the next step. Walk with me today, for it will be just as I have said. That we follow Jesus, and he is worthy of our trust. The Lord's Supper is now set up. Peter and John have, have made it all happen. And what do we see next? The surprise at the Lord's Supper. Now we know that this is not a surprise to Jesus. It's not a surprise to Judas, but to everyone else in the room, the fact that there would be a betrayer among them came as a surprise. Look with me at verses 17 through 21. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. We can assume that perhaps Peter and John, they went and got Jesus and the rest of the disciples. They said, we've prepared this place in Jerusalem, and then they make the walk back from Bethany to Jerusalem. It was evening, so after six o'clock when you could take the Passover meal and eat it. Verse 18, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So it's evening. I mean, could you imagine this scene? They begin to take the Passover meal. For us, you know, we're not familiar or as familiar with, you know, the details of the Passover meal as, you know, someone uh, who, you know, has practiced this before. For them, they had been doing this their entire life. But I think the significance of what takes place in the Passover meal is, is worth describing here. 
Whenever you take the Passover meal, there's, you know, bitter herbs on the table. There's unleavened bread. There's a roasted lamb that was sacrificed at the temple. Uh, There is, you know, there are four cups of wine that are present. And those four cups of wine represent the promises that God made in Exodus 6, verses 6 6 through 7. And so the promises go like this, a cup of wine for each. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel... I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That promise would be given. They would drink the first cup. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. Drink cup two. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Cup three. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now they would celebrate this meal together, and what you'd see is they they would come to the table, uh, they would bless it, they would thank God for it, and they would read the the first promise, and then they would drink the first cup. And and then typically the youngest son would say, what do these things mean? It's just kind of a a way that they would celebrate as a family, a, a recounting of the Exodus. And then what would happen is the father, or you know, whoever's leading during that time, so Jesus in this scenario, would then Uh, tell the story of the Exodus, the way that God redeemed his people through the Red Sea, the way that he brought his people out of slavery. Uh, They would then praise God by uh, singing a portion of the Hallel. They would sing Psalms 113 through 115 together, and they would drink the second cup of wine. Uh, They would recount the promise that God had, would deliver them from slavery. Then the pieces of the unleavened bread would be passed around. It would be broken. They wouldn't let a knife touch it, so they would break this bread. And then they would, you know, pass it around, and it would be dipped in the bitter herbs. And they would eat it, and as they, they felt the bitterness on their tongues, they would be reminded of those years of harsh slavery. It was a physical reminder of what they had experienced. And when, then once everybody tasted the bread, then they would enjoy the lamb that was sacrificed at the temple. They would eat that together as a reminder of God's provision, God's grace, God's mercy for them. After they ate the lamb, once the meal was over, they would uh, drink the third cup of wine and then finish out the singing of the Hallel, Psalms 116 through 118. Uh, The final moment of the meal, they would conclude with the fourth cup, and it has kind of this future promise, which is amazing, uh, that God promised that they would celebrate that he is their Lord and that they are his people And he gave this promise while they were still in captivity that they would be able to acknowledge the deliverance of God before they had even seen it take place. And so every year the Passover was celebrated to remember God's faithfulness, God's care for his people. And that's exactly what was taking place here as they celebrated the Passover, pointing to Jesus, the true Passover. Now, now try to think about what it would have been like to see this entire scene unfold from the disciples' point of view. Imagine Judas at the table. Is he anxious? Is he on edge? Is he able to somehow act like everything is normal? And then Jesus says, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. How did the disciples receive those words? I imagine the room fell silent as they just tried to process that. Like they maybe are, are understanding that, that Christ's death is getting near, but I can't imagine that they thought that his betrayal, his, 
you know, the, the plot to his death would come at the hands of one of the disciples. And then each of them takes a moment to say, surely not I. Surely not I. Surely not I. In Matthew, whenever uh, Judas asks this question, Jesus says, surely you have said so. As, as they're asking in, in John's account, and, you know, Mark, he only kind of gives us the details that we need. And so uh, John spends a lot of time talking about everything that happened at the Lord's Supper. I'd really, you know, encourage you to read the whole thing, the, all the conversations they had that night. Uh, but Mark points to two things, the, the betrayal and the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so as, you know, John is telling the story, uh, he, he recounts that he was sitting right next to Jesus after Jesus has said this, someone will betray me. And Peter motions to John. Uh, I would just imagine Peter being like the friend that thinks he's whispering, but everybody can hear him, like not like super, you know, able to keep things, you know, uh, kind of discreet. And so he's like, and, uh, and so then John like leans in and asks Jesus, he says, who will betray you? And then Jesus says, it's the one in which I, I dip this bread and then give it to him. And so, so then John and Peter would have known that was the question. And then, you know, Jesus dips the bread and hands it to Judas. Uh, we know that because John later says that Jesus told Judas. He, he looked at him and he said, uh, what you have to do, go and do it quickly. And the other disciples think that Jesus is just telling him to go purchase something because he was the one with the money bag. And so perhaps some of them understood what was going on or suspected something, but it seems like at this point, uh, there are really only kind of four of them that know that Judas would be the one that would betray him. And so, you know, as they, they go around the table wondering, is it I, Jesus says, the Son of Man goes as, as it is written of him. He knows that he is about to die, but he says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he has compassion for his betrayer. I mean, God's sovereign plan is unfolding moment by moment. But I think here, Christ gives a, an opportunity for Judas to recognize what is taking place. He says, surely not I. And he just kind of deflects. And perhaps there is a call to examination for each one of us. As you think about your relationship with the Lord, your relationship with sin, there, there are a couple options you have, right? You, you can blame someone else for your sin and say, well, no, it's just because, you know, I, I mean, I was already kind of having a bad day. I, had, I didn't have much sleep. And then, you know, they said this and then this happened, right? It's a moment of weakness. I mean, you can just blame someone else for your sin. Or you can justify your sin, can't you? Say, oh, I mean, anybody else would have done the same thing if they were in my situation. Like, you, I mean, you just got to understand. Or, or you can explain away your sin, right? Well, I mean, I know that's what the Bible says, but like, I mean, was the Bible written to people that, you know, are, are dealing with the same problems that I'm dealing with in 2023? Or you can own up to your sin and you can confess it to Christ and repent of it because he's the only one who can deal with sin. He is the only one who can forgive sin. May we not be those who approach the table and say, surely not I. 
But those who say, Christ, I know that I have sinned against you again and again. And if it was not for your grace, I would have no ability to approach this table. But thanks be to God that I can say, I am a sinner and you receive me still. In any case, we see that Jesus here in his kindness is going to give the disciples a sermon they can see, feel, and touch. He's going to give them a truth they can hold through the bread and the cup. And so finally, we, we see the symbols of the Lord's Supper. Look with me at verses 22 through 25. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, it broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood, the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What has Jesus done? He's given symbols of the Lord's Supper, signs and seals of his redemption. If you've ever seen two countries at war, maybe you're watching the news, and often there's something that they will do. They will uh, take, take a flag from the country that they're at war with, and they'll Pour, pour gasoline all over it. And then they'll throw a match on it. And they will begin to burn that flag. Now, now, why does that incite rage from the opposing nation? Why is there something visceral that takes place when you see the flag of your country being burned? It's because you know that there's something deeper going on there than just fabric that has flames on it. No, it represents a leader, people, Values. There's something more there. I mean, think about uh, a wedding ceremony where, you know, a, a husband slides a ring onto the bride's finger, makes vows and commitments. And no one walks away from that ceremony saying, well, it doesn't really matter if you wear it or lose it. I mean, it's just kind of a, a piece of metal and something shiny. No, it represents so much more. Christ here is, is giving an image that goes even deeper. He's saying, I'm giving you the bread, which is my body, the cup, the wine that is my blood poured out for you, blood of the new covenant. And so Jesus lifts up these two symbols. He took the bread and after blessing, means thanking the Father for it, he who provides, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. He's saying this is my body that is going to be sacrificed on the cross for you. Then he continues. He takes the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I imagine that the meal had gone kind of, you know, the traditional flow up to that point. And whenever Jesus says these words, take this as my body, take this as my blood, the disciples knew that something was changing about the Passover forever, that it had just been a placeholder for the true lamb to come, for this new covenant to be inaugurated. He says, this cup is for you. It's amazing whenever you look at the actual flow of the Passover meal, that this would have take place, taken place in the third cup. Do you remember the promise of the third cup? That, that God says, I will redeem you with outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. And then Christ says, this is my 
body broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out for you. And then Christ would come and he would redeem, receiving a great act of judgment that we deserved in our place from God the Father. That God the Father would love us so much that he would send his son to be our substitute for the judgment that we deserved so that we could have life in his name. Did Christ not redeem us with outstretched arm on the cross that we might live? We see that uh, from, from that first moment in the Exodus story that God was preparing his people, preparing us to receive these promises from Christ. And he brings about a new covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a promise that establishes a relationship, much like marriage vows or a covenant. A covenant love is unique because it is based upon the character of the one who loves, not the worthiness of the one who is loved. And here Christ says, this is my blood which is poured out. It is a new covenant to establish a relationship for you that your sins would be forgiven and that you would be united and in relationship reconciled to God. This new covenant is doing away with the old covenant. What was the old covenant that was given? It was that uh, when someone sinned against the Lord, there could be an animal sacrificed as a substitute to uh, atone for their sins. And yet, as the author of Hebrews would say, uh, no, no blood of goats or bulls could actually atone for sin. That was just a way for God to kind of uh, create a way for us to relate to him. And yet Christ comes once and for all as the sinless substitute, taking on the wrath of our sin, pouring out his blood to establish a new covenant relationship. Those who were familiar with the Old Testament would have known this day was coming. Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 31 says that there will be a day that God will establish a new covenant with his people. It won't be like the same covenant that God established whenever he brought his people out of Egypt. No, he will establish a new covenant in which he will write the law on their hearts and he will give them a new heart all together. And that would ultimately be made available and fulfilled through Christ. We're invited into a covenant relationship with the living God. And the cup that we hold, the bread that we touch is a reminder that God has made a way for us to have a relationship with him. Now, I remember whenever I was younger, maybe, maybe 10 years old, I first went to Universal Studios for the first time. And at that time, like 3D movies didn't exist or anything like that. And uh, we get on like the Terminator simulator ride. Okay, so uh, we're, we're, you know, getting our goggles from the bin and you put them on and you're, and you're sitting there and you find your seat. And then, you know, the, the screen comes on and it's just like all this action and your seat is shaking and, you know, things are like coming six inches from your face is, is what you see and all of this is going on. And, you know, air is blowing at you whenever you're like racing down the street and water sprays whenever you, you know, crash into a river, like whatever it is. It's just like, wow, this is, this is like a completely different experience from just sitting and watching a movie at your house. And there was a family friend who had gone with us. Her name was Leanne. She was a, a good friend of my sister's. She was like six years older than me. And uh, we walk out and you could just tell like by her face that she was in awe. And then she said to us, she said, guys, next time we do that ride, you need to sit exactly where I was sitting. Like third row from the front, fifth seat in on the right side, because where I was sitting, everything was like coming right at me. 
And you could, I mean, it was like all the action was right in front of your face. And I mean, you have to sit where I was sitting so that you can truly experience it like I experienced it. And we were like, Leanne, that, the, everywhere does that. Like that's, that's the whole like 3D, 4D experience is that everybody in the theater does that. It's not like third row, fifth seat from the right that experiences that. And at the same time, whenever we enter this new covenant relationship with Christ, that's our message to the world. Like you should be sitting where I'm sitting. You should know how many times you can fail and still receive the forgiveness of Jesus. You can know what it's like to have perhaps expectations for yourself that, that you never see come about and Christ loves you still. There's this crazy thing where you can look back at your life over 10, 15, 20 years and just see how God was like picking up pieces that you ruined so that he could make much of his name whenever you felt like nothing. The, the Christian life, you can say, man, you should be sitting where I'm sitting because this relationship that we have with God is unreal. And yet, in Christ, it's a daily experience. It's offered to us at great cost to Christ and free to us. Peace that can't be fathomed. Joy that can't be taken away and a hope that is unshakable forever. You see, Christ in his kindness thought of you and me on that night, so much so that he would put a piece of bread in our hands and a cup before our face. And here's where we find the significance of the Lord's Supper. You see, Jesus instructed the church to celebrate the Lord's Supper often. Uh, there, there's no requirement about how often a, a church or a people uh, observe the Lord's Supper. He just says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And we're forgetful people, so we need to do it often. Uh, we have two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, because these are two ordinances that Jesus said, observe these uh, as a way to uh, bring glory to my name. But these, these things have often been misunderstood, especially the Lord's Supper. So much so that uh, people on the outside of the church looking in, uh, you know, early in the days of Rome, they said, these Christians, they do something that uh, kind of sounds like cannibalism, all right? So they, they, you know, go to these worship gatherings, and then they are eating a body, and they are drinking blood, and it sounds really strange. Uh, and so we would say, that's not really happening. Um, let's explain this a little bit because there are, uh, you know, there are a lot of thoughts uh, by Christians that interpret this different ways. And so there, there are four primary views of, you know, the Lord's Supper. The first is one called transubstantiation. Um, now, if you can't just write that out, that's totally fine. Uh, feel free to Google it. I forgot to put it on the slides for you. But transubstantiation is the belief that um, during the, you know, during a worship gathering, that whenever a priest blesses the bread and the wine, that in that moment, it literally becomes the physical body and blood of Christ. Um, so it, it looks the same on the outside, but it physically becomes the blood and the body of Christ. And this is the you know, Roman Catholic view. That's what they believe takes place. Um, now, here's, here's a few reasons that I would say um, this view is to be rejected. Uh, first, because Christ's body is literally physically in heaven. 
Um, and so he is omnipresent, and yet his physical body is, is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, second, I, we, we have to say, you know, um, I understand how this could be taken, but, but we don't uh, interpret this literally because what you're saying is that um, these things have now become God, right? I mean, this is physically the second person of the Trinity that you're holding in your hand. Um, and, and kind of with that is uh, this teaching called Ex Opera Operato, uh, which literally stands for, um, or, you know, means by the work worked. And so the idea behind it is that as you receive the physical body of Christ, the physical blood of Christ, um, that this is able to kind of merit or able to, uh, you know, make God's righteousness come about in you. Uh, that by the, by the work worked, um, something is taking place that um, helps your standing before God. Uh, it's almost like a medicine. Like, you know, if, if I'm sick and I start taking an antibiotic, I don't have to believe that that antibiotic will make me better. I don't have to know the doctor that prescribed it or, you know, the person that manufactured it, but it just kind of works. Um, and so that's a simplistic way to put it. But in, in the same way, there is this idea that, you know, the, the body and the blood just kind of brings about um, this work in, in you that, you know, if, if you don't have faith in Christ or, you know, you're, you don't have a personal relationship with him, it, it's not as significant because it's just kind of coming to you and it just kind of happens. And we'd say, well, no, I mean, repentance and faith and personal relationship with God is, you know, necessary to experience any kind of righteousness, to experience any kind of right standing with God. Um, and, and third, we reject this view because it, it has the idea with it that Christ's sacrifice is recapitulated uh, when the priest blesses the bread and breaks it and when the blood is poured out. Um, whereas Hebrews 9 says that Christ was sacrificed once for all. There's no need for another sacrifice. There's no need for us to think that um, Christ in any way, even symbolically, needs to be sacrificed again for the atonement of sins. Now, I know that many of you in the room come from a Roman Catholic background, or uh, perhaps you're here this morning and you're Roman Catholic, and I would say these are, these are great things to talk about. I, I don't want you to walk out of here this morning and say, oh, you know, I'm upset because this guy said something, and I would say, hey, these are, I'm, I'm glad that you are passionate enough about wanting to honor the Lord uh, that you would want to have a further conversation about this. And so let's talk about what truly happens as you take the Lord's Supper. Second, the view is consubstantiation. So this was coming from Martin Luther who wanted to uphold, you know, that this was literal, uh, the body of, of Christ and the blood of Christ. And so, but he says that, you know, he, he denies that it kind of uh, becomes the physical form of Jesus. And so he says that uh, the body and the blood, that Christ's physical presence is in, under, and through, um, you know, these things. But he, he wants to hold that it's, you know, literal, uh, but, but not in the same sense that it changes. And we would just say, you know, Jesus also said, I am the door and I am the vine, uh, but Jesus didn't have hinges or branches. So he's using, he's using figurative language here. Um, we don't have to say that there is something that, you know, puts Christ in the cracker or in the juice that then brings about a spiritual benefit to you. 
Third, there is the memorial view. So this was kind of made popular by uh, Ulrich Zwingli, who would say, you know, that Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. And so what's happening here is simply a remembrance of what Christ did for us. And then the fourth view is the spiritual presence view. Um, this is the view that the, the body and the blood don't physically become the, you know, literal body and blood of Christ, uh, but that Christ is spiritually present with us in a unique way whenever we take communion together, when we take the Lord's Supper. There's a reason that it's called communion, because as the Bible describes it, it says that, that we are enjoying the presence of Christ in a unique way as we take the Lord's Supper. Yet Christ is omnipresent, and yet there is a way in which uh, the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ, enables us to experience the presence of Christ that is unique during this time of the Lord's Supper. Uh, we acknowledge that, you know, there's not something here that is uh, the physical changing in the, the cracker and the blood, and at the same time recognize that there is more taking place here than a simple memory of what God has done for us. Uh, we see this in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The word koinonia is used for fellowship, participation. Whenever Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation, koinonia, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation, koinonia, in the body of Christ? When we take the, the bread and the cup, uh, there is something significant that takes place that I can't explain. I wish I understood this better than I do. And at the same time, we know that the way that the Holy Spirit works in us, we are spiritually nourished by Christ as, as we take the bread and the cup. Uh, that, that we are not bringing Christ down to us physically, but in a way we are being reminded that we are seated in the heavenly places spiritually with Christ. In the same way that you might be able to just look at someone and say, I love you. Whenever you look at someone and say, I love you, and then wrap your arms around them with a warm embrace, they are able to experience the love in a deeper and richer way than they had if you would have simply spoken the words. And that is what Christ has done for us in the Lord's Supper. He both speaks, this is my body broken for you, speaks that I have forgiven your sins, and then gives us the bread and the cup that we could experience his presence in it. Now, I know that we've covered a lot of ground, uh, but I want you to stick with me because perhaps the most helpful part of this sermon will come in the last five minutes or so. I want to give you five places to look during the Lord's Supper. First, look up. Behold Jesus. Uh, we often say that we take the Lord's Supper, but in reality, the Lord's Supper is something that we receive. It is something that God has done for us, and in him we find a grace that is inexhaustible. We look up and find that Christ gives us a grace that is inexhaustible. Have you ever walked into church on uh, a Sunday just kind of acutely aware of your sin? Uh, maybe you walked into church and you're just thinking, man, I, you know, I've really just blown it this week. Maybe you've sat through a sermon and you've found it difficult to even think about anything that the person that is preaching is saying because uh, your, your heart has just been cold toward the things of God that week. Uh, you know that you've been slow to serve your spouse. You haven't, uh, you know, showed any resistance to temptation. And you're just thinking, should I even take the Lord's Supper? And then what happens? I pray, and then the, the plate is passed to you. The bowl with the crackers is, pla is, is passing in front of you. And you think to yourself, 
if this person passing this knew the week that I had, then I think they would skip me. I don't think they would offer me the bread and the blood at all. And what I want you to know is that Christ wouldn't skip you. That Christ wouldn't skip you regardless of the week that you have had. Because in John 6, 37, he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He gave his body and his blood for you. Though you may drink the contents of the cup, you will never find that this fountain of God's grace is empty for those who acknowledge their need of him. We look up and we see that Jesus is accessible. Why does he give us these things, these symbols? Because he wanted us to see that as, as those who are weak in our humanity, we do not have to climb our way to heaven, but that Christ condescended to us to take on flesh and then to give us these reminders. We look up to see that Jesus satisfies. Why bread and wine? If someone is starving and, and you simply uh, you know, give them a bouquet of flowers or hand them a, a beautiful painting, that will not satisfy. In the same way that our stomachs can only be satisfied by physical bread, our souls can only be satisfied by the bread of life who is Christ. He refreshes the soul and only he satisfies. He guarantees the new covenant that only he can give in relationship with him. I want you to look in, examine yourself. Think about the night that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, how each and every disciple went around and examined themselves saying, surely not I, surely not I. And yet whenever this meal is being given, Paul reminds the church that they should examine themselves 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Yes, God is gracious, but it is a dangerous thing to approach the Lord's table flippantly and casually as if this is just something that you do, another empty ritual that we have. No, something sacred takes place here. We come to the table asking, Lord, search me. See if there is any grievous way in me, desiring that our sin would be exposed and repented of so that we could acknowledge the grace of God. Perhaps you'd say, well, someone, can someone like me come to the table? The Heidelberg Catechism answers this question in this way. Who can come to the Lord's table? And it says, those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their continuing weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. And who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. We are given this gospel that we can hold and taste. If we come as unworthy sinners, we are reminded as 1 Timothy 1.15 says, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Third, we look back, we remember the cross. We are forgetful people. If, if something is not in our calendar or we don't set an alarm or a reminder, we will surely forget it. Would, it be, would there be anything more tragic than forgetting what Christ has done for us? We look back, we remember the cross. The Lord's Supper is not a subjective reality. And perhaps this could not come at a better time in church history. I, th- I think so often we're prone to subjectivism. Maybe we say something like, God really showed up today. 
And by that, we mean, man, the, the way that the worship band sang that song was just so good, or that story that was told was so powerful, and I just really, really felt near to God. And don't get me wrong, I love those moments in a worship service, but they are few and far between, aren't they? They're, they're few and far between where we just have these moments that were just like a mountaintop experience. What happens whenever you come into church and you're wrestling with doubts or you're struggling with sin or you just kind of feel cold-hearted in your faith and you're wondering, can God really preserve me to the end? Did God really forgive all of my sins, including that one and that one and that one? And what we find in the bread and the cup is an objective reality that God is near regardless of how you feel. If you don't feel it, when you don't feel it, look at what you hold in your hands, a covenant promise that was given to you at the cost of God's own son. Whenever you come with your doubts, know that Christ will meet you here. He he offers his body, his blood, and when you come in next week with similar fears, worries, and concerns, the bread and the cup will be waiting for you again. Fourth, we look around. We love one another. Communion is ultimately about community. Whenever Paul gave the, the commands about taking communion in 1 Corinthians, uh, the problem was division in the church. And, and he told them that they needed this reminder as they took communion, that there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As you take the bread and the cup, be reminded of those around you. Consider one another. Who's underserved? Who needs to be encouraged? Where is a grudge being held? Where is jealousy ripping apart a relationship? Where does reconciliation need to happen? Because as we take the bread of Christ, we recognize that we are partaking one bread and are unified under him. Fifth, we look ahead. We anticipate Christ's return. Jesus said, I will not drink of this cup again until you are face to face with me and we celebrate this meal again together. We anticipate the return of Christ, whereas Revelation 19 says we will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the church, the bride of the Christ, bride of Christ is united with her groom, and that all things are made new, that Christ will come. What we hold in our hands when we take the Lord's Supper is more than prop, but a proclamation that Christ has done great work to save us, and that Christ is now with us. Let's pray.